At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. All right, this morning I want to encourage you to take out your Bible and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, we're going to be in chapter 11 this morning. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 1 and we're going to look in verse 6 and then we're going to jump around a couple other places in Scripture, but we'll have the Scriptures up on uh, the screen this morning. And as you're turning there, just maybe, maybe you become aware of this, but it seems as though there's been this big shift in the, the world of productivity or the, the innovations in technology or even in the production of new materials. And it seems like there's been this shift from building things that will last, right, to this new idea called planned obsolescence. Has anyone heard of that term before? Right, remember when we were kids, maybe those of you that are even a little bit older, like the Tonka truck? Does anyone remember the Tonka truck? Like th that dude was indestructible. Like you could throw that, you could send a nuclear bomb to that truck and it would still stand the test of time, right? That, that was built to last. But nowadays, it seems as though uh, the world of manufacturing has gone away from building things to last to planning things becoming obsolescent or being obsolete, right? And one of the biggest areas is in the area of fashion, right? Fashion's continually changing, Actually, it's not actually changing. It just is this big cycle, right? I was at the store the other day, just yesterday, with my, my daughters and looking at the clothes that were on the rack, I felt like I was in 1992. Right? Does anyone feel that way? Right? You, it's like, it's all coming back. It's all coming back. And, and it's just this cycle, right? But there's this idea that, that, that we need to continually change things, right? That, that things no longer need to last. They just need to be cool and catchy and then... The next thing. So we're moving on to the next thing and the next thing. We, we see this also with cell phones. The, 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 at the very moment that you buy the latest and greatest technology in your cell phone, the, the second that you purchase it, guess what happens? A new one comes out, and that one becomes obsolete, right? And so we, we get caught in this cycle, where, and we live in a world that wants to update everything. We want to advance every idea, and, and things become obsolete so quick but I want us to understand today that there are some things that don't need to be updated. Right? There are some things that still stand the test of time. Some things that should never be outdated, improvised, improved upon. And one of those things that I want us to talk about today that should never be improved upon, should never be changed, is this idea of truth. See, we live in a world where there's been this massive attempt to update truth. Maybe you were a part of what was known as the postmodern era, right? This was a, a movement in the, the realm of thinking that says, you know what, truth is oppressive. 
And so there's no such thing as absolute truth. You have your truth and I have my truth. Right? Has anyone heard statements like that before? Right? That's, that's a very postmodern way of thinking. Where, where truth has become obsolete, we no longer need truth. You can have you, you just go be happy, I'll be happy, and we'll get along and everything will be fine. Well, the problem with the postmodern movement is that the very statement of there is no such thing as absolute truth is a statement of absolute truth. Right? So it becomes a contradiction in and of itself. And so now we've moved on from postmodernism to post-truth. There are people now that look at truth and they say, okay, I, I, there may be such things that are absolute truth. There, there may be truth out there. But the post-truth culture says, you know what? I just don't care. That truth no longer matters. The only thing that matters is my feelings. Where if I feel something to be true or I feel something to be good, then I'm going to walk in that way. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. And there's a great danger walking down the path away from evolving from truth and fact to feelings is that our feelings constantly change. Our feelings leave us unsettled where truth really grounds us. Right? Truth is what holds us in the midst of the unknown, in the midst of the uncertain. And you know and I know, like our feelings change. Right? I wake up in the morning, it's a little bit cold in the house, so I put on more clothes. And then a little bit later, I'm super hot, so I take off more clothes. Right? We're constantly changing. Even our tastes change. Right? When you were a kid, you probably liked a lot of sugar and sweets. And maybe now you're a little bit older and you, you switch and you feel like you like savory things instead of sweet things. Right? We're, we're constantly changing. And that can cause us to live lives that are full of anxiety. Live lives full of fear because there's nothing that keeps us settled. What happens when feelings reign is that we come up with all kinds of statements that support our feelings. And these statements that support our feelings don't have to be grounded in what's true. They just have to be statements that support how we feel. So we can make stuff up. And so we live in this world today that's full of information, right? We're in the information age. If you want to know how to fix anything, you can just go online and figure it out. If you, we, we, we have no lack of information. But the problem is, is that we live in a world where people are led by their feelings. That information no longer has to be true. It can be misinformation. Right? I can just come up with whatever, I can say whatever I want to say so that it can support how I feel. And so we live in the world of misinformation, we live in a world of disinformation, and this can be super confusing, especially for those that are trying to live in truth. Right? How many of you guys want to live in truth? Amen. We should. We should want to live in truth because if we live in a world where two plus two no longer equals four, you think it equals five, you think it equals seven, then we can never agree on anything. Right? Then there's, there's no unity, there's, there's no understanding. And so we live in a world, and it can be very, very difficult, even for the younger generation, 
Right? We, we, we live in a world of misinformation, disinformation, and it's super hard and difficult for people, for us, to discern between what is truth and what is error. Truth is of utmost importance, especially as it relates to our faith. I want to reaffirm you this morning, church, that truth does matter. Your feelings don't matter. Truth reigns over your feelings. Your feelings should submit to what you know to be true. But that's not what we're being told in the world today. And so today, we are beginning a new series entitled The Essentials. Why Truth Matters. In this series, we are going to to systematically walk through and identify the central truths, the basic doctrines to the Christian faith. We're going to, over the next 10 weeks, we're going to look at if we are believers, right? I know there's a lot of different thoughts and a lot of different feelings or lots of different thoughts in the world of Christianity. But what are the essentials that all Christians of all time in all places, what are the basic doctrines that we can stack hands on and say, yes, this is what I believe. This is my firm foundation. This is what I'm, I'm banking my faith on. This is what I'm banking my future on. What are those essential doctrines that I need to believe and that I need to affirm in order to be a believer? So that's what we're going to walk through the next few weeks. And we're actually going to use the Apostles' Creed as a, the rubric for this series Now, the Apostles' Creed was not actually written by the Apostles, but the Apostles' Creed itself was a statement of faith that was used in the early church to help be a discipling tool. There weren't, at that time, there were a lot of people that couldn't read the Bible, didn't have the Bible in its completeness. So the the Apostles' Creed was developed as simple statements that you could memorize so that you could know the essentials of what you believe. And so we're going to use that as the rubric for our, uh, our time together in God's word. And through this series, we're going to seek to find, to use God's word as our source of truth to determine, to, to inform us on what we should think, on what we should believe. Now, believing is not based in feeling. So I want to make this, we're going to be talking about this in through this whole series. To have belief in something is not to have a feeling in something. Another word for it is faith. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is a determination of our mind and our will to trust in something else. We're going to see the writer of Hebrews um, define that in just a moment. But here's the thing as we started off the Apostles' Creed this morning. The first statement that we're going to look at today is I believe in God. I believe in God. Now the truth of that is, you, uh, that if you go to ask uh, the majority of Americans, right now if you were to, to go do your own poll, you don't have to worry about it because the Gallup just did a poll. And what they came to find out is that 81% of Americans believe that there is a God. Well, that's exciting. Right? That's good news. Right, 81% of Americans believe in God. The sh- shocking thing is that over the past two generations, that's down 17%. So we need to understand 
that there is this shift away from believing in God. It's happening around us. It's happening in the midst of our generation. It's not just assumed that everyone believes in God. But we believe in God. There's even inside of the American culture today, there's this move towards silencing belief in God. Where to believe in God is to be, soon to be, no longer appropriate. Because God, if there is a God, then we are accountable to this God. Right? And if feelings are reigning and God wants us to be accountable to him, what happens when his accountability doesn't match up with my feelings? What reigns? Well, in our world today, feelings reign. So we reject God. So today, as we dive into God's text, what I want us to begin is to begin developing a biblical understanding of God. And we're going to begin by beginning to understand what belief or faith is. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. As you're looking in verse 1, I want to remind you the big idea today is that believing in God is essential to possessing truth. If we ever hope to possess truth, right, it begins with believing in God. As we look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and then we'll jump down to verse 6, what I want us to see is that belief in God is how we draw near to him. Belief in God is how we draw near to him. Look, look at verse 11, verse 1, as the writer of Hebrews is going to define belief or define faith. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now let's look down into verse 6 and see where does the object of our faith or where our faith should be. Verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We'll get to the second part of verse 6 later on uh, today. But we have to understand the context of Hebrews first of all. Right now in this part of the, of the passage, we're diving into the middle of a conversation that, that the writer of Hebrews is writing. And he's in the midst of helping uh, believers understand how they exercise their faith in the midst of suffering. And so as you read on through Hebrews chapter 11, you see how individuals throughout history have, placed, have lived out their faith in God through actions. Right? Again, faith is not a feeling but is a disposition of the whole person towards the object in which they believe, which impacts the way that they live. And so the writer of Hebrews here gives us the definition of faith. Faith is banking your life, or giving you, taking the assurance or the conviction on what is not possessed or realized at the moment. Right, things hoped for and things not seen. Faith is an orientation of trust on the word or promise of another. So the reality is, is that everyone has faith. 
Right? Even the person that doesn't believe that God exists, that person has faith. They're trusting in something to give them assurance. They're trusting in something to bring them peace. They're trusting in something to orient their lives towards. So we're all people of faith. Right? We, we may believe that there's a sun god that's out there that, that is, is, is orienting our lives and, and making our lives good or bad based on how we worship the sun. Right? We, we all have faith. The majority of people are placing faith in themselves, right? They, they become the center of their own lives. And so faith in, in themselves is saying, hey, I can do this myself. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I can become the best version of me, right? There are people that believe that and they're orienting their lives towards faith in themselves. But the writer of Hebrews says that, that faith is, is, is a conviction of something that's not yet realized, but it's our faith is based in the word of another. And so Hebrews chapter six, we see that without faith, it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. See, believing in God is two, begins in two things. One, you must believe that God exists, right? And two, you must believe that he is the greatest prize. But that, that's the foundation of our faith. We must first believe that God exists and we must believe that he is the greatest prize. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. He rewards those who draw near. Well, what is the prize? God You see, one of the greatest challenges of believing in God is that we can't see him. We can't see him in bodily form, right? We can't go to a place right now and say, there's God. That becomes one of the greatest challenges. But we place faith in the fact that he exists. And one of the ways we do this, we look to, the, to Paul, the writer of Romans, like we, we know that God exists. Go to the south rim of the Grand Canyon and look into the canyon and then say to yourself, I can do this. Right? Or go all the way out into the country where there's no light pollution in the middle of the night, look up at the sky and you see all of the stars and all that and, look to your, and say to yourself, I can do that. Can you? No, there's someone, something greater than you out there that exists. And he is God. I love what the writer of Hebrews, if you look in verse 3, the writer of Hebrews goes on and says this, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen, what is seen, was not made out of the things that are visible. Right? We have a creator God who has stepped into space and time and created all this that we see so that we would know that he exists. It's the beginning of our faith. See, what we know about God is that he is invisible. We also know by looking at creation that God is powerful and we know by looking at creation that God is holy and we know by creation that we are accountable to this God 
I love what Paul writes in the first chapter of Romans, beginning in verse 18. He says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animal and creeping things. What Paul is saying is he's helping us understand that God is invisible but through his creation we know that he is powerful we know that he is holy we know that we are accountable to him and then he goes on to talk about the foolishness of man how the foolishness of man knows this in her heart but seeks to suppress the truth That's what we do in our nature. We want to suppress the fact that God is creator and to him we are accountable. So much so that he goes on and says the craziness of what we try to do is that man would go out into the woods, know that there's a tree there, cut down that tree, knowing that that tree existed in the tree form, and that he takes a part of that tree, then takes it back to his workshop, begins to whittle away at it, and next thing you know, you have a little sculpture of a squirrel. Nothing wrong with that. But the man, in his desire to suppress the truth, then takes this image that he has made, puts it on the mantle of his house, and then bows his head to it. Are you kidding me? That man knew where that squirrel came from. He saw that it wasn't pre-existent. He brought it from the woods, from a piece of wood, made it into a squirrel, and now he bows his heart to it as though that squirrel is going to give him fortune, as though that that squirrel is going to give him salvation. That's the futility of the human mind. That's the futility of the human heart. That we would take something that was created, fashion it into something else, into resembling a mortal man, birds or animals and creeping things on the ground, And we would bow our hearts before it. You see, we know that there is a creator God who is invisible, powerful, and holy. And our response is either to place faith or believe in him or reject him. You see, many people say that they believe that God exists. But they don't live as though he exists. Think about that. There are many people that believe that God exists. They they believe that there's a God that has created all things and even a God that we're accountable to. Even many professing Christians often lived as functional atheists. The belief in God is just something that's in their head. Yeah, I believe that there's a God. I'll I'll give mental assent to that. I'll agree to that. But that, that belief has no bearing on my life. So Christians who are functional atheists do not seek to know God. They don't make any effort to draw near to him, nor do they make any effort to live consistently in the way that God has designed. 
So they believe that God exists, but it doesn't change how they live. Instead, we are called to act as though God does exist. We are to understand that he does exist, and to him we are accountable. And because of that fact, that has bearing on everything that we do in our lives. If there is a God, which there is, and he has created all these things, which he has, then it has impact on all of our lives. So what's our response? To draw near to him. To draw, to get to know him. How silly would it be for you to to live in a relationship with your spouse and never get to know them? How long is that marriage going to last? Right? How long is it going to last? It's not going to last very long. You're like, oh, I believe in marriage. I believe in my marriage. But I'm not going to live as though I believe in my marriage. It has no impact on what I do on Friday night. My marriage has no impact on how I, I interact with people of the opposite gender in the office. Now I can do whatever I want. You're not going to stay married very long. Right? The, the truth of, of what you believe, the truth of what you do, impacts the areas of your life. If you, if you are married, that impacts the things. And so you draw near to your spouse in order to develop and strengthen that relationship. In the same way, we draw near to God in the opportunity to, to get to know him and know what his desire and know his design for our lives. Which leads us to the second truth. Is that belief in God is how we understand him belief in God is how we understand him. You see, our belief, our our faith is not a blind faith that is guided by our imagination or by our whims. Faith requires some sort of revelation, right? If God is creator God and he has, uh, we're accountable to him, then he has the responsibility to reveal himself to us. It would be an uncruel God for him to create us and then leave and say, we'll figure it out. And then make us accountable. That would be a cruel God. But instead, God has given us revelation. He's given us the Bible as the source of our revelation. In the Bible, God discloses to us his nature. Discloses to us his character. In here, he discloses to us his design for our lives. So our faith requires some sort of revelation. There's got to be something to which we're drawing upon that in which we believe. And it has to be a source of truth. So I love how Scripture reveals to us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So we believe That God's word is breathed from God. That if he wants us to live in a certain way, then he has to tell us how he wants us to live. And so God's given us his word as his revelation to us so that we can know how we are accountable to him and how we are to respond to him. You see, the early church understood the sufficiency of scripture that the word of God was fully contained. All we need to know about God is in the word of God. So to the early church, 
And to the believer, this was the rule of faith. Everything in life, anything we believed, anything we felt, anything we desired for the early church was ruled against this rule of faith. This became the ruler to which everything was measured. And today, I think the truth still remains. That this is the rule of faith. This is the source of our faith. This is where we come to, to allow it to inform how we think, how we live, and even what we desire. The Bible reveals lots of things about God, and I want us to see two things the Bible reveals about God to us. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What Scripture reveals to us is that God is one. There is only one God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, for the, the Jewish people in the Old Testament, this became part of the Shema, which is what they recited every single day to remind them of the undivided nature of their God. The Lord our God is one. So God is one. There's only one God. There's not a, a pantheon of gods. There's one God. He is creator God, he is sustainer God, he is holy God. But then we go into the New Testament and God is, is further developing and, and, and unfolding to us his nature and his character. We see in Matthew chapter 28 verse 19 the call for believers to go. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So though there is one God, we see this, this God exists in three distinct persons inside of the Godhead. We would refer to that as the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is what scripture reveals to us. So let's build a framework for understanding who God is. So to know God, we have to have faith in God. And our faith is built and reinforced by believing in God's revelation, how God reveals himself in the scripture. And so we see that there is one God who exists in three persons, three co-equal, co-eternal persons of the Trinity or the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We're going to unpack that a little bit more as we continue on in the weeks ahead. But now just for a moment, imagine with me that I create a game. Okay, I get, the, get all the pieces, I get the board out, and I lay it out on my kitchen table. And then all of a sudden you come in, and you, you come into my kitchen, and you're like, oh, it's a game. And you start sitting down, and, and the instructions aren't there, but you begin playing it and all this other stuff. You begin moving these pieces there and rolling this dice over here and doing this and that. And you're playing the game all wrong. So I come in, and I see it. I, I say, wait a minute, wait a minute, hey, 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 hey. You guys are playing this game all wrong. That's not how you do it. That's not how you're supposed to do it. Let me tell you how you're supposed to do it. What gives me the right to do that? I'm the maker of the game. Right? I made the game. I get to tell you what's right and wrong, what's good and bad. If you can move two, forward, two steps forward or if you have to move three steps back, I get to tell you that. You don't get to determine that. Right? And in a similar way, God is the game maker. God is the one that's created all things. You didn't create it. 
And when we play the game or we live life wrong, it is God who has already given us the rules. He's already shown us the way that we should live. And it's his word that corrects us when we go astray. See, though we go back and we see that the majority of people believe that there is a God, there's a vast difference between what people believe about God. How we view God is important. Again, it's not up to us to define how we view God. Right? There are some people that view God as a good luck charm. I'm going to live my life however I want to live, and when things go bad, I'm going to pray to this God that's out there, and he's going to give me what I need. Right? We see that happen all the time. I mean, no, the world doesn't need God until something goes bad, right? Then all of a sudden we need God. Or some view God as a, a cosmic grandfather. Right? You guys know grandfathers, right? The grandfathers are different than fathers because fathers still have to maintain order and all that. But grandfathers, they, they can spoil their kids. And so some people see God as that. Like, I'm just going to go to God and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask him. He's going to bless me. He's going to bless me. He's going to bless me. There are others that see God as an absentee creator. Right? That, that God has created all this thing, that he's left us here on his own, that God is so far away, God doesn't understand, God doesn't know, God is not connected to our world. So uh, that's God, he's out there. We're here fending for ourselves. Others see God as a condemning judge. There's nothing I can do that's good. All that's for me and before me is condemnation. So you see, the way that we define God changes the way that we live. Right? If God is a benevolent grandfather, right, that's going to change the way we live. If God is a condemning judge, that's going to change the way that we live. But it's important for us as we believe in God to be reminded that defining God is not left up to us. God has clearly defined himself to us through Scripture. So through faith, we trust that there is a God but then we get to know, know God as we draw close to his word. He's given us this word so that we can know him. The challenge that we face, though, is this next generation of believers, by and large, is becoming scripturally illiterate. It's damaging to our faith. It's damaging to the church, to the next generation. I'm not just talking about being able to quote the books of the Bible, but being able to define the meta narrative. Like, what does this tell us from beginning to end? Can you, can you describe scripture to someone? Like, what is the Bible to us? Or can, you, can you tell the accounts of scripture? Are you studying the word of God? Because if we really do believe that there is a God and he's given us his word, then we need to allow his messages to pour into our eyes, his messages to pour into our ears, his messages to pour into our heart so that we live in a different way. If all we're consuming is things of the world, we're watching the things of the world, we're hearing the things of the world, watching the news reports from the world, and, and we're consuming all those things and not giving God space in our own lives, then we have no ability to discern between truth and error. We just have misinformation, disinformation, mixed with some information. 
And then what we do is we, based on, I like this information because I, it makes me feel good. Or I grab this information because it supports what I feel. Or I grab this information because it supports what I think. No, no, that's wrong. That's the total wrong approach. We begin with the word of God, and then we're able to discern those other messages that are coming to us. The challenge is, is that by and large, people are using the Bible less. Let that not be so about us. Let us be children of the word, students of the word, where we're devouring it every single day. Lastly, belief in God is how we enjoy him. Look at me back with Hebrews chapter 6. It says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So there's a reward, right? We, we please God when we believe that he exists and we please God by drawing near to him. And when we draw near to him, guess what happens? We get a reward. And guess what that reward is? God. We get him. We get him. He is the ultimate reward. He is getting him is like having an audience with the king. Getting him is, is like being an adopted child that goes to the father and says, Father, this is what's going on in my life. And the father says, I hear you. And I'm ready to move on your behalf because I hear you. So the greatest joy is that we get God himself. What a great and mighty gift. Sometimes we get this mixed up. I remember there was a guy years ago who, who, uh, who was a part of our church. And if he could make a t-shirt, he would make this t-shirt. We wouldn't allow him, but he would make this t-shirt that says, I'm just here for the blessings. And then literally, that was like, that he came into church one day. He's like, hey guys, I'm just here for the blessings. Right? <laughs> which which he, understanding the reward that's there is, is, is a right heart, Right? There is a reward, but we have to understand how we define those blessings. The world will tell you, you seek God so that you get a better bank account. You come to the church so that you, and you live your best life now so that the Lord will reward you with a bigger house, a better car, a nicer spouse, right? You do these things and you get bigger and better. That, that's someone that says, hey, I'm just here for the blessings. I'm just here. God bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me. That's great. Bless me. And when we say bless me, we think of of, um, earthly rewards. When in reality, the blessings that come by seeking the Lord are eternal rewards. Store up yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust don't destroy. Right? And we do that by drawing near to the Lord. As we come to our, our close, I want to remind you of one other aspect of God that we see throughout all of scripture is that God is love. God is love, right? Yeah, let's get this. We exist, we're here because God is love. And though we believe in God, we draw near to God, God is also drawn near to us. Though our sin has separated us from God, though God is holy and we are sinful, God came to us. I love what Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 16. He says this, For God, being this creator God, so loved the world 
meaning the world and the fact of in our sin, in our shame, in our rebellion, there was still love. God knew that we could not save ourselves. There's nothing good inside of us that would seek to earn God's favor. So what did God do? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You see, God's love for us is most specifically points towards Jesus. Jesus, who is fully God, who was God, Scripture tells us, took on flesh, lived among us, lived a perfect life, never disobeyed God the Father, but he came with the purpose of dying on a cross. He went to a cross, and on the cross, the Bible tells us that an amazing exchange took place. All of the sin of the world, your sin and my sin, was placed on Jesus. And Jesus endured the wrath of God. He took our punishment in our place. And then Jesus died. And God saw his sacrifice was enough so that he raised him from the dead. And now Jesus is alive. And as John 3.16 reminds us, is that just Christ's sacrifice is enough for the world, but only those that place faith in the work of Christ are forgiven and have eternal life. So this morning, my ask, my ask to you is have you come to the place of placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? If you haven't, then today can be the day of salvation. If you want to talk more about that, I'll be available in the lobby after the service. Come by and say, Pastor, I want to know more about Jesus. But for those of us that are here that are followers of Christ, that have already believed in Christ, I want to ask you this question Are you a functioning atheist? Really is God's word the source that you come to to speak into how you parent, to speak into how you live in your marriage? Uh, does the word of God speak into how you live with your finances, how you live at work, how you live with your neighbors, how you think politically? Is the word of God the source of all of those things? Are you coming to the word of God and allowing that to inform you? Or are you coming to the word of God with your feelings, trying to find scripture passages that, that support your own feelings? See, church, we need to live different. We need to live different. We need to think different. And God has given us all that we need for life in godliness. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we are truly grateful for your word. We know that your word brings life to our lives. And I'm thankful for the fact today that we truly can believe in God. Father, I'm thankful that you've given us your word as a revelation to us so that we can know you. And we thank you, God, for Jesus. That in Jesus, through faith in Jesus, we can be reconciled back to you. And that through Jesus that we can call out to you as our father because we have been adopted as children. Father, if there's anyone in this place this morning that has not yet come to that place, may today be the day of salvation. Or Father, today we come confessing the fact that we are guilty of looking at other sources for truth. Or Father, that we've neglected the ultimate source of truth. You've given us your word, which is sufficient for all life. 
And so, Father, I pray today that we would once again be reminded that we are to believe in God. But we're to believe in you as you have revealed yourself to us in Scripture, not in the way that we feel. So, Father, I pray that if there's a part of our lives or part of what our, our belief has been that has not been founded in your word, would you convict us of what is not true and help us to embrace the reality of who you really are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.